The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We'll return to this great chapter. Very familiar words. All the way throughout this chapter, very familiar themes, as we've seen already in this upper room discourse which now has extended from the upper room down onto the eastern slope in those groves and in the, the vineyards, heading toward the bottom of the Kidron Valley, which they'll cross over when we get into chapter 18. This is Jesus' final instruction of his disciples on how to live life with him, what? Without him. How do you live life with an invisible Savior? He anticipated what difficulties these men and subsequently all believers would have living life with an invisible Savior. And he anticipated those needs and those struggles and spoke these words that the Apostle John penned. And as we've noted before, what's interesting is only John wrote these things down. Matthew, Mark, Luke didn't write this conversation down. And John left out elements of this conversation that they recorded. This morning we'll be looking at verses 18 through 27, which is a long section, but it's so intertwined it has to be taken as one unit. Follow along as I read. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours." But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. They have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. One of the terms that's come to popularity in recent years, in fact, it's defined by the ever-popular urban dictionary, is the term haters. You've heard of haters, right? There's haters in the sports arena. There's haters in the acting community. There's haters in the newspaper. There's haters in politics. It typically means someone who does not like someone because of their success. And therefore, they're relegated as, you're just a hater, but it has enlarged to mean much, much more than that. Now it's used as dis- the disposition you would have against someone with whom you have a disagreement. The passage before us is about the haters of Christ and the haters of Christianity and Christians in particular. 
It's also about the helper to those who are hated. They go in tandem, they go hand in glove. Jesus promises something to these men that they were going to experience in just an hour or two. They were haters in the community, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They were haters of Jesus, then subsequently haters of the disciples. And remember, Jesus is preparing his men. What is it going to be like when I leave? When I ascend, when I go back to heaven, after my resurrection, what will it be like for you to live and represent me in a world that was incredibly hostile to me? Well, in chapter 15, it's a tightly wound argument. Jesus has encouraged the disciples to abide in him, to draw their strength and life from him, not from the Christian construct, not from theological books, but from the person of Christ who then fills all those theological constructs and who fills all those theological books. Abide in him. Then they're encouraged to love one another. This love for one another seemed benign enough, just thank you, Jesus, I, I have issues with them, but I'll, I'll try to love them. And remember, these were the guys who just an hour or two earlier were arguing while Jesus was washing their feet over who was going to sit where when Jesus was on the throne. I mean, they had to be encouraged to love one another. The church has to be encouraged to love its own as well. But now he turns to their witness about him. Abide in me, love one another, Witness for me, witness to me, witness about me, in verses 18 to 27. And part of this understanding of their witness was to get their expectations in the right place. One of the things that I think is so missing in modern approaches to evangelism is to set properly the expectations that a believer, a convert in Christ, should realistically expect if they give their life to Christ. I mean, we could have a gospel presentation that went basically like this. God gave his son for the salvation of your soul in perfect satisfaction of God for the payment of your sins. Everybody would say, great. We're used to saying that. We could also say that one day that forgiveness and that perfection that he promises you will be realized in heaven. Oh, you'll struggle in this life and you'll be sanctified throughout this life, but one day you will be made all whole and righteous and perfect in heaven. We'd love that. We could also say that he's given you the church and all the blessings of Christianity, but one thing that would be largely missing from our evangelical appeals is, by the way, this is going to cost you everything and will likely turn everyone against you. Yet, that's exactly the context for Jesus setting these men off to be a witness, to be evangelist. That's the context that he spoke to them in. Men, your expectations better be set right. If you think you're going to go out and be you know, the, the, the hero of the year, the man of Jerusalem for this time, if everyone's going to uh, put you on the back of a donkey and put palm branches down and say that you're the, the king's servants, beware. They did that to me at the first of the week, and what's going to happen in just a couple hours? They're going to arrest and crucify him. What are our expectations when we introduce Christ to someone, and what are our expectations in our own living out of our faith? Jesus deals with those expectations right here. He says you're going to expect, you should expect hatred, but you should always also expect help. 
We're going to follow that simple breakdown. Two expectations of a faithful witness. Two expectations of a faithful witness. The first is in verses 17 through 25. The first expectation is this. Hatred from the world. Hatred from the world. As I said, one of the most neglected parts of evangelism is informing people that they should expect controversy. They should expect persecution. They should expect ridicule. They should expect being ostracized and alienated and marginalized as a result of their faith. Think about it. This is so contrarian and so counterintuitive. If a person truly gives his life to Christ and begins to demonstrate things like the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If they demonstrate graciousness, godliness, if a person begins to exercise the Christian virtues, they just become plain old nicer. They're better people. You would expect that these kind of kind, genuine, gracious folks would, would experience a welcome mat in anyone's life. That they would expect a, a welcome reception with anyone's relationship. But the point made here is that this is not the case in the world, though it should be the case between believers. Yes, we should love one another, less we should put the accent on all those virtues we see about Christ and in Christ and through Christ in one another, but that's not the reception that the world has for Christ and certainly not for his followers. Verse 18, look at that. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. You could actually translate that, since the world is going to hate you. This is an assumption. Now, let me show you some really complicated High end, you got to go to seminary to understand exegesis. Are you ready? Please notice that verse 18 follows verse 17. Do you see that? Verse 18 is after verse 17. That's on purpose. Look at verse 17. He's very clear, Jesus is, when he says, This I command you that you love one another, next phrase, and if the world hates, love and hate. Christians and the world. Massive, massive distinction Jesus is painting in their minds right here. By the way, this is the third time in this discourse Jesus has encouraged the disciples to love one another, meaning that they really needed to get this. Oftentimes we think, I need to love the world, I need to be attractive to the world, and that way they'll be attracted to Christ. That's the exact opposite message that Jesus gives the disciples. He says, they, the world, will know that you love me when what? You have love for who? One another. They will know you love me when you love the body. You say, wouldn't loving them really make them respond? No, as we'll see in a minute, only God's choosing makes them respond. Our faithfulness to love one another is the most attractive part of an evangelistic strategy. People should want to have what the church has with each other. That's why he says three different times, love one another. Christian love is placed in contrast to the worldly hatred here. The verses certainly played out in the lives of the disciples. Uh, All but John met the martyr's death. The world's going to hate you and it's going to get after you. And it certainly did. If we were to go on to the end of John, we would see that Jesus promises Peter, 
Someday someone's going to lead you somewhere where you don't want to go and stretch your arms out in a way that you don't want to have them stretched out. And it says this was prophesying, Jesus was prophesying, telling Peter of what kind of death he would incur. Then we know tradition tells us he was crucified, and Peter said what? I don't want to be crucified like my Lord and asked to be crucified upside down. What's the general feeling of unbelievers toward Christians today? All you have to do is turn on CNN or Fox, turn on one of the talk shows, and introduce, how can I say this, a faithful biblical witness, because they're not always on there, in the discussion, and they are instantly the ones ridiculed, alienated, out of date, backwards. The general feeling of unbelievers toward Christians today is the same it was in Jesus' time. We receive ridicule. We receive mocking. We receive slander, accusations, certainly misrepresentations, right? It's a verse in 2 Timothy that... um, is an ambush of the Lord and a gracious, loving promise as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Paul tells Timothy, indeed, all, you know this verse, you can finish it with me, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Now here's what's amazing to me about that verse. He doesn't even say all who live godly in Christ Jesus. He says, all who desire to live in Christ Jesus, to be godly, will be persecuted. What is this about? Where is this in our evangelistic strategies? Is this God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Really, the first spiritual law is God loves you and has a horrible plan for your life if you don't repent. And by the way, afterwards, the the life that you really want is in heaven. This life will never produce your best life now, contra those who are publishing books of such ridiculous titles. Your best life now? Who wants their best life now? I want mine in heaven that lasts forever. Not in this life that only lasts a few years. Look over just for a second at a controversial text. I want you to see this in Colossians chapter 1. Because this, this has absolutely everything to do with what Jesus is telling his disciples. Which is... Um, uh, uh, an amazing insight into what the world wants to do with Christ and what they want to do and will do with us. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says something really odd. In fact, Catholics, Catholic theologians sometimes pick this up and say, this is why we do the Mass, to re-crucify Christ every time we have the Mass. That's not what's going on here. Paul says, now I rejoice, Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? I'm going to finish up, I'm going to complete that which is lacking in Christ's sufferings, Christ's afflictions. Wouldn't we all say that Christ was afflicted and suffered enough on the cross? Wouldn't we say that his death was sufficient And the answer is, yes, we would. So what's Paul saying here? That he wants to finish that which is completed, incomplete, finish that that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. Here it is. They can no longer get to Jesus to ridicule, mock, crucify, but they can get to the church. And Paul is saying, I want to finish that which Jesus started. And if he took the cross for me, I will take the blows for him. 
That's what he's saying. The remarkable part of this equation, if you look into the verse, is that we would be hated because they hated Jesus. Hating Jesus, this is just mind-numbing to me. As someone who loves Christ, who sees Christ as precious, as someone who's wept over the graciousness of Christ painted in the scriptures, how could anyone hate Jesus. Yet, during his life, he was hated by the scribes, hated by the Pharisees, hated by the Sadducees, hated by the high priests, hated by the Jews, and even hated by the Gentiles and the Decapolis. The hatred and rejection of Jesus began at the very beginning of his ministry and persisted all the way through his three-year ministry on the earth. Now, we're going to take a quick tour because you have to see this. This is overwhelming in the crescendo. Turn back to John chapter 1. I want to show you just in John's gospel a quick whirlwind tour of this rejection and hatred of Jesus in the book of John because that's the foundation on which our lives are laid to say if they treated Jesus this year, that Jesus this way, they're going to tra- treat you this way and worse as well. John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. That was Jesus. And the darkness didn't get it, didn't understand it. Look at down at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not literally care to know him, want to know him. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say, we speak of what we know and testify of what we Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Look at chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They were trying to trap him and to kill him. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests... And the Pharisees sent officials to get him, to grab him, to arrest him, to seize him. Look at verses 47 and following. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? Have you been seduced by this Nazarene? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him uh, before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first bears from him, hears from him, and knows what he's doing, what he says. They answered, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. What he's saying, what these men are saying is, we want to put not only a stop to Jesus, but his influence. People are starting to follow and listen to this man, to listen to this guy. Look at chapter 8, verse 40. We could go on and on looking at this this progression. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, Jesus said. To be persecuted and to remain true to Christ is actually a distinguishing mark of a converted soul. To be persecuted and to stay true is what the disciples would be and do different than Judas was and did. 
Persecution not only separates us from the world, it proves that we are in God. That's what he's saying. You're not of the world, you're in me. You live differently, you act differently, you think differently, you are different. Evangelism. That last part of the verse is amazing. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Wow. If they understood who I am, what I'm doing, the power of the cross, and you give them that same message, they're going to believe you. Are you ready for this? Just as if I was speaking through you. It's remarkable. They persecuted me. They will also persecute you. One of the great tests of evangelism is of, of evangelicalism, of true Christianity, is do we have any level of persecution? Now, at this point, th- this is hard because the answer is, well, yeah, sort of. I mean, what, what could happen to us? We, we might uh, be passed over by, by a boss for a promotion. We might get made fun of in the neighborhood. Our, our kids might be, be said to be weird because they don't cuss. We, I mean, that's, that's our level of version of persecution, and we can... We can certainly say that that's a level of of God testing our faith. But we have to remember that the Bible was not just written to us in Kansas City in this century. There are people who have understood this throughout the pages of church history and who understand this today as the fact that their very life could be on the line because of their faith in Christ. And when we see this, I think we need to be careful to apply it as deeply as we can, but also remember there are those who will apply it at a much more sacrificial way than you and I will today. To pray for the persecuted church. To remember that we have brothers and sisters who will be executed today. Today. Because of their faith in Christ. And to pray for them and the witness of their deaths. The power of the cross. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you. Here it is, for my name's sake. They don't do this because you're a nice person. They don't do this because you're kind to dogs and cats. They do this because you're associated with me. Because they do not know me, the one who sent. Remember what Jesus said all throughout the string of scriptures I was going over? They didn't see that I was from the Father. You don't believe that I'm from the Father. You don't believe that I'm from God. That's the connection they refuse to make. That's still the connection that people refuse to make. People who are nice typically don't receive persecution. The source of this hatred transcends our niceness, goes to our Savior. Why? Because people don't want to be told that there is the ultimate authority, God, and the ultimate sacrifice for the sins, Jesus on the cross, the ultimate power of that that reconciliation to God being demonstrated in the resurrection. They think it's fantastical, it's mythical, no one would believe that, that's the stuff for science fiction. Not only that, if I acknowledge Jesus as Lord, I become his slave, and now he regulates my morality. They don't want to be told what to do because they're comfortable in their sin just as you and I were. It's the one behind our moral choices, the one who motivates us, the one who sustains us, the one who we cannot stop talking about, Jesus. He's the reason people dislike Christians, or at least he should be. People sometimes 
don't like us because we're hypocritical. People sometimes don't like us because we're not faithful. And they have, there are rocks they could throw at us, aren't there? We should make sure that the real reason that they see to persecute us is that we believe in the living, resurrected Savior who changes lives and who will one day judge the living and the dead. That's our message. There's that disconnect between seeing Jesus and knowing he's from the Father. He's a person of the Trinity. That's the point that Jesus is making here. They don't see that the one who sent me. They don't make the connection with me being God. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not, would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, this is a very misunderstood uh, verse, but it's very simple in the context. Does this mean if Jesus had not come, they wouldn't be guilty of sin? If that's the case, why did he come? Just leave them alone and they'll go to heaven. No, no. The sin here is very specific. The sin here is not making the connection in the previous verse that Jesus is God and from God. They rejected him as the Messiah. That's those scriptures that we went through in the book of John. They rejected the connection between Jesus and God the Father. The sin they're guilty of is not recognizing that Jesus is the explicit and only way to come to know God the Father. That's why I said back in chapter 14, no man comes to the Father except through me. The miracles, the miracles that Jesus performed had value, evidential value. They should have seen those miracles and said, God is behind who this Jesus character is. In fact, he is God. And he attaches that in verse 3, back to the original theme. He who hates me hates my father also. Wow. You can see where this message would have stunned and stung the Pharisees. You say you have God the Father. You say you know the law. You say you know God. If you hate me, you hate God. You want to find out whether or not the world is willing to persecute you? Look someone in the eye and you can say it with a smile, but say, if you hate Jesus, you hate God. See what kind of response that brings. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. They are one in the same. To hate the one is to hate the other. To love the one then is to love the other. If I had not come among them, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, have not not have sin, but they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Now he connects it back to that evidential value, the evidences of his miracles. You know, some people say, well, if Jesus were to come back today and do the things he did then, everyone would believe. Really? Do we really believe that? They saw him alive after he was dead and didn't believe him. In fact, he goes on, verse 25, but they've done this. Here's the motivation, the scriptural foundation. They've done this to fulfill the word that was written in their law. I love this. It was Jesus' law too. It was the disciples' law too. But he says, I want to connect this to their own self-indictment. They hated me without cause. This is a reference to two Psalms, Psalm 35, 19, Psalm 69, 4, which both say the same thing. They hated me without cause. And let me go back again. What in the world is there to hate about Jesus? What kind of fool says no to the forgiveness of sins? 
What kind of fool says, no, I don't want to go to heaven? What kind of fool says, yes, I want to pursue my own path and throw eternity away and receive hell as the natural consequence of my choices? What kind of fool says that? Well, it's the one who hate Jesus without cause. There is no cause. Which goes back to the centrality of our evangelism. Listen. The plan of salvation is secondary to the person of salvation, right? We're not presenting a different way to live. We're representing and presenting God in the flesh who died for sinners and rose from the dead. And the plan is to believe him. I guess I'm sensitive to this because I grew up um, in, in... FCA and Campus Crusade for Life, and it was always the plan, the plan, the plan, the plan, and it was rarely accented in my understanding of evangelism, the person, the person, the person, the person. Jesus says, this is about me. They hated me. He doesn't even use the word gospel here. They hated me without cause. Let's make sure they're rejecting a person and not just a plan. Oh, it involves a plan, but make sure they're rejecting a Savior willingly giving himself up for their sin. Which leads us right into the area of evangelism. We come to that second expectation. We should expect to be hated by the world. Secondly, we should expect help from the Holy Spirit. We should expect help from the Holy Spirit. This has to go in tandem with the previous passage. When the Helper comes, verse 26 whom I will send to you from the Father. This is really theologically interesting because earlier twice we found out the Father's going to send the, the, send the Holy Spirit. Now we find Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit. And all throughout these, these five chapters, there's this wonderful mixing of the Trinity that I think is just beautiful. Well, is it the Father or the Son? And the answer is yes. Who sends the Holy Spirit? God does. Who? God the Father, God the Son. God the Holy Spirit came willingly as well. We can't bifurcate, I guess the word is trifurcate, cut into three parts, the Trinity so much that God becomes three instead of three and one and one and three. When the helper comes, that's the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of, what's the phrase there? He already called the Holy Spirit this once, Spirit of what? Truth. Why the spirit of truth? Because the world is all about deception and lies. And the enemy, John 8, is all about lying to the world about who Jesus is. Again, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 14, verses 16 to 26. We'll come back to the Holy Spirit in chapter 16, by the way. Jesus really wants us to know he's sending us his spirit to sustain us. But here we find out more of what he will do. Interesting that the Father and the Son are both involved in the sending. The Spirit of Truth, just as in 14, 17, he's going to testify against the world, as we'll see in chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. He's going to come and testify against the world. How will the Holy Spirit testify against the world? Two ways. Two ways. Number one, by the word, by God's word. That will testify against people and their sin. Problem is, very few unbelievers sit around on a park bench reading their Bibles. 
So how else will the Holy Spirit testify to the world about sin? And the answer is, look around. It's us. It's the witness. It's the testimony. That's why he says in verse 27, and you will testify also. The Holy Spirit is testifying and our testifying go one and the same because you've been with me from the beginning. Here, one of the primary missions of the Holy Spirit is given. He will point to Jesus, and so should we. He will speak about Jesus. He will bear witness to Christ through the power of the Word, the illumination of the Holy Spirit in the Word, and through the empowering believers in their witness. Look over at chapter 16 for just a minute. We, we can't resist reaching across the chapter. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me, Jesus says, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He'll take the truth, belongs to me, disclose it to you, and you will pass it on. Look at verse 15. All the things that the Father... All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit is the agent who works in the believer's witness. Be encouraged. When you're talking to someone about Christ, when you're witnessing, you're not, it's not that God's in the grandstand saying, go get him, tiger. It's not that the angels and, and the saints of old are sitting in heaven saying, oh, I hope he's faithful. No, the Holy Spirit himself empowers that witness. I mean, have you ever been faithful in a witnessing opportunity and thought, what was that? I can't believe I said that. That was bolder than I typically am. Well, it was bolder than you typically were, and it was the Holy Spirit working through us. Verse 27, by the way, it says, you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. That verb can be read as an indicative or an imperative. Let me give you a little quick Greek lesson. The indicative is just saying something will happen. The imperative is something you must do. You can read that and you must testify also. It's a command. Jesus is saying that because these men are now qualified, they've been with him from the beginning of the ministry, they know who he is, they have the message, they'll have the full message by Sunday death, burial, resurrection. Now they must testify to know the gospel is a mandate to share the gospel. Jesus does not guarantee that he will protect us, though. This is incredible. This is incredible because it's good news. Gospel is good news. I'm going to send you out to testify on my behalf about me but I'm not going to promise to protect you. In fact, you're going to be persecuted. In fact, some of you are going to die for me. In fact, some people in our world today will die for the name of Christ. What is that? That's only something you would be committed to if you saw the infinite and precious value of Christ. It all comes back to who he is, what he did, being secure in him. This is not the prosperity gospel something different. This is faithfulness that will one day land us in heaven and the faithfulness might in some situations actually accelerate our experience of heaven. 
God has sovereign care over all of us during our life, after our life. You can look at the history of God's representatives from, John the, from the prophets to John the Baptist, all through church history. Many have experienced persecution, rejection, disenfranchisement, on and on, but some even died. What should we expect from being a Christian in the Kansas City area? It shouldn't be employee of the month, and it shouldn't be man or woman of the year. If people saw our Christian virtues and want to honor in that way, have at it. But let them see the one who motivates us to be those kind of men and women. Here's a question, just two. Do you experience any level of pushback or persecution because you love Christ? Do you? Is Jesus... Remember what Peter says? He's the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Do people not like it that we don't cuss? Do people not like it that we don't cheat? Do people not like it or do they have an issue with the fact that we believe the gospel? Only way they're going to believe that is if we do what? We tell them what we believe and why we are the way we are. And that we're not yet the way we want to be. And that's called heaven. Do we have a life that draws persecution because of Christ? But can I ask you something to go one level beyond that? Do we have prayers that actually see the persecuted church in our day? Do we have an awareness that we have it pretty pretty good here? Our persecution might be getting made fun of, and there are people who will die today. Ever seen that little magazine, Voice of the Martyrs? If you haven't, you probably should, but you better get your tissue box ready when you do. It talks about those who are being martyred all around the world. It gives us perspective on these things. I'll give you a situation that happened in April 17, 1975, that will launch us into a different level of understanding this passage, not just for ourselves, but to pray for those who are really experiencing this kind of persecution. In the village of Saim Reap in Cambodia, a young man named Haim, a Christian teacher, knew that the youthful black-clad Khmer Rouge soldiers that were now heading across the field were coming this time for him. Haim was determined that when his time came, that he would die with dignity and without complaint because of his faith. Since liberation on April 17, 1975, what Cambodian, had, what Cambodian had considered, not considered this day. Haim's entire family was rounded up that afternoon, and they were told, they were, um, told that they were the old dandruff, the bad blood, the enemies of the glorious revolution, CIA agents, because they were Christians. The family was rounded up, gathered together, bound up and tied, and they spent a sleepless night comforting one another, praying for one another in a dewy grass beneath a stand of trees. The next morning, the teenage soldiers returned and led them from their Gethsemane to their place of execution to the nearby killing fields. The family was then ordered to dig a large grave for themselves. 
Then consenting to Haim's request for a moment to prepare themselves for death, father, mother, and children, hands linked, knelt together around the gaping pit, and with loud cries to God, Haim began exhorting both the Khmer Rouge and all those who were looking on from afar to repent and believe the gospel. Then, in a moment of panic, one of Haim's youngest sons leapt to his feet and bolted from the surrounding bush to the surrounding bush and disappeared. What happened next was remarkable. Haim stood, jumped to his own feet, and with amazing calmness and authority prevailed upon the Khmer Rouge not to pursue the lad, but allow him to call the boy back. The onlookers peering around, Khmer Rouge and the stunned family still kneeling at the graveside looked in awe as Haim began calling his son, pleading with him to return and die together with his family. What comparison, my son, he said, stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your family here, momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. After a few very tense moments, the bushes parted, and the lad, weeping, walked slowly back to his place with the kneeling family. Now we are ready to go, Haim said. They were all shot in the back of the head. Their bodies toppled silently into that earthen pit that they had dug for themselves. And yet, we know what immediately took place, that their faith became what? We can't read passages about persecution and just think, someone made fun of me because I'm a Christian. Without thinking, someone will die today because of Christ. And to ask God to send his helper who he promises at the end of this passage, not just to us, but to be connected with the people with whom we're going to spend eternity who are around the world, who don't speak our language, and who will die today because of the gospel, to teach our little ones that there are those paying the ultimate price today, and to remember that persecution is the path to glory. Would you pray with me? As you bow your heads, I... I'd like to ask you just to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed for a moment just to think and meditate. This Christianity is a big deal. This is serious stuff. This is a commitment to the one who says we will endure what he endured at some level. And the reason, the, the begging question is why? Why would we possibly make such a sacrifice and count such a cost? And it's because we have such a Savior. We have an amazing God who asks us to be amazed. Do we value Christ greater than any and every earthly treasure? 
Because only that value system will lead to this kind of persecution and this kind of sacrifice and this kind of support and prayer for those who are experiencing persecution way more than you and I ever will. In a few minutes, we're going to be dismissed after we sing a song. And to my right, the door is a prayer room. If you are struggling with an issue you want someone to pray with you about, if you want to understand what it means to be a Christian, if you have any questions about anything we've said or you've heard or sung today, if you want to know what it means to join our church, there'll be men and women in there who would love to assist you in that and serve you in that. So after the song, please make your way over to the prayer room and you can stay for as little or as long as you want to. Father, we are... overwhelmed by your help as the Holy Spirit is our helper, overwhelmed by our task because it's bigger than us and we could never fulfill it without your guidance and your sustaining presence and power. Lord, give us a taste of persecution. It's hard to even ask that. It's hard to even pray that. That will give authenticity and authenticate our faith and help us to remember how gladly we should be to take the blows for him when he took the cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.